The Athletic. Formula One's first visit to Sepang in 1999 was unforgettable. Michael Schumacher made his glorious return after breaking his leg earlier in the year at Silverstone, promptly smashed everybody in qualifying, then set about becoming the best number two F1 has ever seen as he handed the race to his title-chasing teammate Eddie Irvine. The drama then continued after the race as both Ferraris were thrown out, Mika Hakkinen was declared world champion with a race to spare and then a week later Ferrari got that decision overturned, once again setting up a final round showdown at Suzuka. We're going to dig deep beneath the surface of all of that and much more on this episode of Bring Back V10s and joining me, Glenn Freeman, to do that are Gary Anderson and Karun Chanduk. Now Gary, you were there, your Stuart team were there that weekend in Malaysia. So when you think of F1's first visit to Sepang, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Um, yeah, well, obviously it was a very, always nice to go to a new circuit and it was a, a fantastic circuit. And we, we were coming from uh, the European Grand Prix, the previous Grand Prix, where, where Johnny had won in, the, in adverse conditions, I suppose you might call it. And Rubens was third, so we were, we were going there with quite a high momentum of uh, motivation, I think, you might, again. And Johnny had definitely found his feet, so... Um, you know, as as the, the weekend progressed, Johnny was definitely uh, back in contention to be the driver that we always knew he was, whereas he'd, he'd struggled a little bit in the middle of the year. So. But the circuit was fantastic, you know, all air-conditioned offices and everything you ever wanted. Um, and it was a, you know, it was a real challenge circuit as well, fast, slow, long straights, you know, so it was a good a good compromise circuit. Yeah, it's a great track and we'll we'll talk about it in a bit more depth later on. Karun, good to have you back with us for another episode in this series. What stands out for you about that weekend? Michael Schumacher's qualifying lap. I mean, <laughs> this was a guy who, the last time we saw him was, you know, ploughing into the barrier in Stowe, the British Grand Prix, months earlier. And then there was all this stuff about, can he drive, can't he drive? He's out playing football when he's telling people he can't drive, etc., etc. And then he arrived bang, six races off, and he's on pole by nearly a second. Yeah, it's incredible. Plenty to go into there as well. Let's hear what those of you on Twitter chose as your standout memories. Not for the first time this series. We had over 100 suggestions for this. So thank you to everyone who sent something in. And sorry, I can't get to all of them. Naturally, most of those replies this time involved the words Schumacher and or barge boards. So let's clear some of those first. We'll start with Schumacher. Uh, his his return that we've already mentioned a couple of times was chosen by Nico uh, Gareth Langley, who said he took it for granted as an eight year old just how good that performance was. We also had it from iRacing Aussie, Black Mask, Sean Gibson, and Hamilton Lyndon Griffiths. Steve Bishop and Mimi mentioned the story Karun uh, mentioned there about Luca de Montezemolo finding out Schumacher was out playing football after he'd said he wasn't fit to come back for the final races. Uh, on to the barge board mentions, a few shout outs uh, specifically for Ross Braun holding a ruler up against one on the Sunday night. Thanks to Jamie O'Leary, Stephen Briggs and James Proudfoot for that. Aaron Collins, Richard Towler, Colin Mills and Gareth Jenkins also mentioned barge boards. And some of you even said this was the race where you learned what a barge board was. Uh, Jason Ting says this was my first ever F1 race and I fell in love with it and still watch it today. I always like stories like that one. Quite a few of you mentioned regret that F1 still doesn't race at Sepang today, uh, including Simon Ems, Michael Butler and JR. 
there were other stories from this weekend that we'll be we'll be getting into. Uh, a quick reminder that you can get early access to new episodes and bonus content, among other benefits, as part of the Race Members Club. So head to the-race.com forward slash members club to sign up. And why not check out our Bring Back V10's merchandise range as well? Head to shop.the-race.com and you'll find our range of clothing and other products with a V10 era twist. Of course, make sure you get your questions in for our series finale. You can ask us anything about F1's V10 era from 1989 to 2005. Simply tweet them using the hashtag BringBackV10s or email them to BringBackV10s at the-race.com. But now, on to Malaysia 99. We're kicking things off in early October, as that's when Ferrari announced that although Michael Schumacher's latest checkup with doctors had shown that his broken leg had healed sufficiently for him to resume normal activities, the team said Schumacher has informed Ferrari of his decision not to take part in the remaining two Grand Prix of the season, as he feels he is not sufficiently fit to cope with the demands of a race. Schumacher tested at Mugello the following day and gave a press conference where he explained his decision, saying that he was disappointed, but he felt he could only drive at his true level for five laps before struggling physically. Schumacher was clearly in quite a prickly mood during this press conference. He said he was fed up with constantly going back and forth in his mind over whether he could return and he was finding it difficult to deal with the setbacks in his recovery. He said it would be impossible to do a full Grand Prix and he even took a swipe at Ferrari's statement for creating a false impression about how far along his recovery was. He hit back at claims that he had abandoned Ferrari in its hour of need with Eddie Irvine fighting for the championship, saying these rumours have no foundation. So Karun, when it was first announced that Schumacher wasn't coming back, were you surprised? No, I don't think so. um, Because ultimately, you know, I I thought, well, he's got to decide if his leg's broken, his leg's broken. But um, and if it's not fit enough to drive, he's not. Uh, You know, I think at that stage... We were in the thick of a very exciting world championship battle, really. Um, you know, you had three drivers all in the fight. DC was sort of vaguely holding on uh, as a fourth contender, I guess. And there was plenty going on. And actually, yeah, it would have been nice to have Michael back. But I think we were all as fans just enjoying it. And as Gary mentioned, we'd come off the back of a superb weekend at the at the Nürburgring. You know, it was just such a a chaotic race as a fan to be watching. Uh, and before that, we had the drama of Monza with Frensen winning and Mika dropping out from the lead. You know, there'd been some some fantastic races up until that point. So, um, no, I, I, don't, I don't recall having many thoughts about it, either surprised or not. It was just like, okay, well, he says he's not fit enough. That's it. Years later, Irvine was quite pragmatic about all of this. He said on Sky Sports' Legends of F1 series with Steve Ryder, that Schumacher didn't want to come back, and Eddie understood that. Uh, Irvine said, He was trying to miss the rest of the season for obvious reasons because he didn't want me to win the first championship for Ferrari. He was hired to do that job, so it made total sense. I wouldn't begrudge him those feelings. If I had been him, I wouldn't have wanted to either. Irvine also said that at that Mugello test, Schumacher was within a couple of tenths of Eddie by his second lap of the day, and it wasn't long before he was half a second quicker. And uh, Irvine said, it's impossible. It's really, really annoying, but it's amazing. It was an honour to be able to see his telemetry and the things he could do with the car. 
Now, Gary, you knew Irvine well, and a couple of races after this, in 2000 with Jaguar, he was back with you. Is his pragmatic view there on Schumacher not wanting to come back, is that what you would expect from Eddie, a kind of big dose of realism and, and maybe acceptance of the situation? Well, yes, it is. I mean, the, the fact, you know, Michael was was so good at uh, taking the best from any car he ever drove. I mean, whenever he drove for us in the Jordan, the 191 in, in, in Spa, that's what he did. He just took the best from the car all the time. And Eddie, I think it was, it was uh, Imola. I watched Eddie and Michael driving down into Rivazza 1 uh, at the beginning of practice. And, you know, the, the car, it's a downhill left-hander, and the car, both Ferraris, you know, had a big snap on the entry. Uh, the rear would come around quite aggressively. And uh, the next lap around, Michael, the snap was about half. Third time around the snap, you couldn't even see it. Whereas Eddie went the whole session with the rear ends snapping. So, you know, Eddie was one of these never really adapted to the car. Very, very good driver, very, very quick. And when the, when the car was good, it was good. But I think Michael knew that coming back to these last two races, the only way that, that Eddie could win the championship was for Michael not to beat him. Um, and, uh, you know, he didn't want to not not come back and give it 100%. He didn't want people to say, oh, you broke your leg now, you're not quite as good as you were. So those laps, the qualifying lap in Malaysia, was just, was just Michael doing what he could do. He came back and he had to give it 100% because he had to prove to himself that he, he could give it 100%. And that meant that the championship was going to struggle a little bit for Eddie. So it was a, it's a twofold thing. You know, he didn't want to come back and show himself not to be as strong as he was before he left. And he didn't want to come back and help Eddie win a championship whenever whenever he knew himself he should have won the championship. So it was difficult, but, you know, he did come back. He did show he had got 100% of his talent was still there. He did give Eddie a little bit of a hand, but then, you know, Eddie threw it away himself, really. This was peak Michael Schumacher, I think. You know, between 95 and 2000, yeah, Mika was, was there in 98 in particular, but you do get the feeling that it, Michael had him broken his leg in 99 with all the mistakes that McLaren and Mika made and he would have blitzed that championship really. So I, I think, you know, that was A, that was peak Michael Schumacher where he was the standout driver by a long margin. Uh, secondly, I think that comment from Eddie is really telling of the difference between the mentality of Eddie and Rubens Barrichello who went there as his replacement because Eddie went there knowing, listen, I'm going to be a number two. And, you know, with all due respect to, to Gary and Jordan, he would rather have been a number two at a Ferrari driver and he could have snuck in the odd wins and even on a bad day he'd get a podium and et cetera, et cetera, versus being the number one driver in a, in a midfield team. So, whereas I think Rubens, and you saw this, didn't you? Even in 2003-04, you get to pre-season and Rubens will be talking about, this is my year, the car suits me and I'm going to be a championship contender. And Eddie's just like, Whoa, 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 whoa. If I can get within three tenths of this bloke, I'm going to be fine. I'm going to make lots of money. I'm going to get lots of points and a few podiums and, and I'll be somewhere. I think that just that different mindset meant that Eddie had a, a happier time at Ferrari, whereas Rubens had a more frustrating time being beaten by the greatest driver of his generation. And four days later, after all this had played out, there was a miracle. After those uh, tests at Mugello and Fiorano, where Schumacher was running all week, he changed his mind and decided he would race in Malaysia after all. There were rumours that Schumacher came under pressure from the very top of Fiat to come back and uh, that Ferrari 
President Luka Montezemolo hit the roof when he called Schumacher's home and found out Michael was out playing football, a story that Irvine says is true. Schumacher, of course, uh, wouldn't quite admit that he was forced to come back, but he did say Montezemolo insisted that I return. And Michael added, perhaps I had spoken a little too hastily, but testing went well and I could see I could make some more progress. Sometimes it is better to change your mind than to carry on making a mistake. That's good advice for everybody. Over a race distance, I might have some problems, but it's very important to Ferrari that I am there. I'm not at 100%, but I've realised that I have to be there. Obviously, I too wanted to make this comeback, but I had to convince myself. When I made it known that I wouldn't be in a condition to race, I wasn't bluffing. I felt good, but it's one thing to go for a walk in the park, and it's another to endure a Grand Prix. I hope to be able to help the team in Irvine, but I'm not promising miracles. Montezemolo said Irvine had pleaded with him to get Schumacher to change his mind. And when the Schumacher news was confirmed, Irvine said, For three and a half years, I've tried to help Michael win the world championship. Now the focus is on me and I hope uh, that with his help, I can win it, which would be mission accomplished. Now I have an even greater chance with Michael's help. Karun, did the fact that Schumacher was effectively forced to come back here, maybe show that he didn't hold all the power at Ferrari because it, it seems here that he thought he'd made his mind up and then he gets told by the bosses, no, you are coming back. Well, ultimately, man with the gold makes the rules, doesn't he? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> they, they were, I'm sure there was a, a healthy insurance payout and all those sort of things. But, you know, at that stage, Michael was earning twice as much money as anyone else on the grid. And at some point, if Ferrari paymasters are going, hang on a second, we're trying to win our first world championship in 20 years and the bloke who can help us is out playing football in his back garden hang on a second what, why are we paying him half a million a week <laughs> yeah. um so yeah I'm, I'm sure there was an element of that but uh, i think um the way michael came back and, and gary makes a really good point right he never wanted to come back and just drive around trying to be second so he came back he controlled this Sepang race, which we'll, we'll talk about, I'm sure, later on. But he controlled that weekend. He dominated that weekend. And, and he not only controlled um, his race, but he controlled the strategy of everyone around him and sort of just made that whole race happen. And, and the same when we went to um, Japan. You know, he absolutely destroyed Eddie in qualifying. So it, at the end of the day, I think if a driver is going to win the World Championship, and if they're going to be a deserving winner of the World Championship, you know, I, I, correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think Eddie got any poles that season, did he? In 99, I don't think he got one pole position. So there's, there's some of those things. So, and I think Michael wanted to make sure he, he was able to still tell the world that he was king of the castle at Ferrari. We'll come back to Ferrari later. As, as we've hinted at already, there's a lot more to their weekend. Let's move over to Jordan where high-tailed Frentzen still had an outside shot at the title, despite breaking down from the lead at the Nürburgring. But the focus was now on his teammate Damon Hill, as there were rumours that Hill wasn't going to see out the final two races of the year with the team. Jordan had started looking around for replacements in case it needed them, but then Hill decided he would finish the season. However, Damon said in his book that he only, he only did this out of fear that he'd be in breach of his contract if he stopped early, and he was terrified of the potential financial repercussions for his family if that happened. Hill said, I feared I would end up with nothing, just as had happened to our family following my father's death. 
This thought alone was enough to send me into extreme anxiety. I was probably overreacting, but when you have no idea how to control a situation, it is easy to get things out of proportion. If I thought getting into F1 was hard, getting out was turning out to be even harder. Eddie Jordan has always said that he'll totally misread this situation, as Damon apparently read an interview Eddie gave to a newspaper earlier in the year and misinterpreted something Eddie said to mean that there would be a big legal battle if Damon walked away, which Eddie says wasn't the case. So Gary, we could we could answer this question from most of 99, but looking two races to go, when you've got a driver as mentally broken as Hill was for most of this season, would it have just been better for both sides if they just agreed to part ways early? Well, it would have been if, if somebody else was standing on the sidelines that could have picked it up quickly enough and been competitive enough. Because once again, it's a bit like Eddie and, and, and Michael. For, they were fighting for the championship. But as you say, Heinz Harald was, was still there, still, still potentially uh, had a potential chance of the championship. So you, you know, you're better sometimes to go with what you've got. And they know each other. They work, you know, they work okay. Uh, you know, Damon wasn't doing the job that Frenson was doing by any means, but at the end of the day, he still was doing a job and the team understood him quite well. So if you bring in somebody new, sometimes it can upset the apple cart and the other guy lose out a bit because of it. So either way, it's the right decision. I don't think that uh, Damon at that point in his career should have been worried about the financial implications of of the last two races. You know, he, he did... It was because of him, I suppose, that the, the budget... Uh, at Jordan in '99 was improved, um, you know, because Damon brought a lot of a lot of uh, credence with him. So it was one of those sort of situations, I think, where you couldn't make the right decision for making the wrong one. You know, you just had to be so careful to to make sure you didn't upset the team momentum and uh, and see the season through the way it was. So right for Damon to, to continue, I think, and right for the team to let Damon continue because you didn't run that risk. Of, of throwing it all away just for the sake of uh, getting some other driver in, maybe to pay a few a few quid to Eddie, which he, he never really refused to often. Um, but at the end of the day, the, the, the bigger picture was was seen by all, I suppose. and It, it worked out okay for everybody. I don't know. Looking back at it, I remember I've, I've spoken to Damon quite a bit, actually, um, about this. And he said he wanted to stop at the British Grand Prix. He just he wanted to do one last British Grand Prix, say bye, to the home fans and then stop uh, and Eddie wouldn't let him you know and, and I, I have a different view on it I think when a driver doesn't want to do it anymore then you should let them walk I, I think back to Nicky Lauda and Bernie Eccleston you know um, remember that was in Canada he drove one practice session got out of the car and said right I'm done and Bernie went and just found somebody else and said oh yeah you can go but can you leave your helmet behind so I can give it to somebody else and <laughs> And look, I think, you know, there are a whole load of people putting in a lot of effort into making that car competitive and successful, as, as Gary knows much more than me. And if the guy in the cockpit doesn't have the motivation or the hunger to find the extra four tenths, then all those hours that the people in the wind tunnel have spent is is kind of futile. So, so to me, really, they should have, you know, Eddie was in a bit of a bind because of the Benson and Hedges deal. And it was quite funny, actually, because this year at the British Grand Prix, we had dinner in the, in the, in the campsite, and there was Eddie, Damon, myself, 
uh, and a couple of other racing people like Darren Turner and Peter Dumbreck and stuff. And we, we got them both to recant the last half of 99. And it was quite funny because we had been a few glasses of wine at that stage. And it was getting louder and louder as we kept saying, well, you wouldn't let me stop. Well, no, you <laughs> And they, they kicked off in classic Eddie fashion. But I think, as we all know, Eddie's a very persuasive man. And I imagine if he went and said, Damon doesn't want to do it anymore. I can't force him to drive the car. Come on, BNH, let's have a bit of a deal. We're in contention for the World Championship. Friends is giving us loads of publicity. Let's get a young hot shot in for the last part of the season. I imagine he could have tried a bit harder to, to settle that deal. Yeah, I, I agree with you, Karen. I would 100% have backed uh, Damon retiring or stopping after the British Grand Prix because that gave them enough time to, to do exactly what you're saying, get a young hot shoe in there and, and, and try to help France win the championship. But for the last two races, it's a, it's a bit of a, a turmoil. You know, they're, they're flyaway races. You don't, they're not, it's not as though they're on home soil. Um, but yeah, from my point of view, if Derek Damon had uh, retired at the, after the British Grand Prix, that would have been 100% correct for him and for the team. But not, not the last two races, just that sort of seems a little bit late in the, late in the equation to, to try to help the team get the best result possible. Yeah, I agree. Other, other than if you could find another uh, Eddie Irvine, who obviously drove for us at, at Suzuka out of the blue in 93, and, you know, did fantastic. Um, if you could find a, a hot shoe from the, you know, from the uh, Super Formula out there, out in Japan, that really was a master of Suzuka, then perhaps it would have been the right thing to do. But, you know, they were few and far between. Do you like Formula One but struggle to keep up with everything that's going on? Then we have the podcast for you. Introducing the Race F1 Briefing, the podcast that brings you the latest F1 headlines in 15 minutes or less. With new episodes dropping on all four days of every race event, you'll never miss out on hearing what went down in practice, qualifying or the Grand Prix itself. And we'll also bring you all the behind the scenes news and gossip from the F1 paddock as well. If that sounds like the F1 podcast for you, search The Race F1 Briefing in your podcast app of choice. We'd love to have you join us. In the driver market, Olivier Panis was on the verge of signing a deal to become McLaren's test driver. Panis had decided earlier in 1999 that it was time to split with Alain Prost's team and he'd initially signed a deal to race in kart with Patrick Racing. However, that deal gave him a window where he could back out if he was offered an F1 seat. Panis dismissed rumours at the time of Arrows and Minardi being interested in him, saying he would not gain anything by going there. And on F1's Beyond the Grid podcast, he revealed that talks with McLaren over a test driver role were his idea. He said that when he suggested it to his managers, Keki Rosberg and Didier Coton, they asked if he was mad. But they contacted McLaren and designer Adrian Newey was keen on having an experienced race driver testing for the team full time. Ron Dennis had doubts about offering Panis a deal because he didn't feel right offering a Grand Prix winner a testing-only contract, but Panis assured him he wanted to do it, saying McLaren will be giving him a present if they took him on. He added, I took the risk because I wanted to know what was my real potential in the best car. Karun, you're the racing driver among us here. Can you understand Panis's mindset here and the fact he was willing to give up racing for this opportunity to drive one of the best cars on the grid. Well, this was the era of the super test drivers, wasn't it? Where they were doing loads and loads of mileage. So um, 
it wasn't like, say, a decade later where you're just sort of loitering around waiting for somebody to fall down the stairs. This was a time where the cars were running. If you think back, actually, in that run-up between Sepang and, and Suzuka, even in this season we're talking about, you know, I think McLaren and Ferrari did 11 test days each just between those two final races. Start, they'd have a whole day of just start practice. They'd have a day of wet test, tire testing, you know, all this sort of stuff. So the, the test drivers would get a whole load of mileage and, and, and would, especially with a top team, get a chance to experience and learn how a top team operates. So from Panis' standpoint, I guess he was thinking, listen, if I can gain a whole load of knowledge from a, a championship contending team, then I've got to be in line for a good seat with a, the a midfield team later on because they're going to want that knowledge. And lo and behold, that's what happened um, a, a couple of years later, wasn't it, when he ended up at BAR. So um, I, I actually think it was a brave move to do. Um, you know, it was at a time where people who were no longer able to get a seat in F1 went to CART or went to IndyCar, um, you know, as, as that split was happening. But actually, I think it was a brave move. And he sort of set the, the tone, didn't he? You had De La Rosa, Alex Wirtz, um, a bunch of those sort of drivers who, who all took that step back from racing to go testing and using that as a catapult back into a race seat. Yeah, he also, as you say, Karen, the, you know, the amount of testing meant you had valuable seat time and you could, you could be referenced against the, the race drivers. But also, you know, Michael showed at Silverstone that... Uh, you can't have an accident, you can't break your leg, and suddenly there's a, there's a race seat available to you. And if you're in the prime position of doing some testing for a, for a team, then you might just get that seat. So I'm sure Palace never thought on either of the McLaren drivers hurting themselves. But in the background there, if they did, you know, it would be better to be lined up ready for that seat and, and uh, take the opportunity if it came to you. And that, that's, you know, only gives you that opportunity. It doesn't, it doesn't mean it's going to happen, but it gave you that opportunity to be there ready and waiting, I suppose. So there's lots of there's lots of doors that taking a year off can help you. And we're seeing that this year with Daniel Ricciardo, you know, we're just seeing what's going to happen with him whenever it uh, all unfolds. But there is doors that, that can help to open for the future. Yeah, Panis really started that that trend, as you mentioned there, Karun. He was the first person willing to take the plunge and say, no, I will. I will step back. I will be on the sidelines. Uh, Panis uh, was had a much busier 2000 than I think Daniel Ricciardo's 2023 <laughs> will be for the comparison. Now, back at the end of 99, there was an FIA World Motorsport Council meeting around this time. And we'll pick up on a couple of the interesting rule changes they announced. Firstly, this was when F1 introduced the entry deposit for new teams, which still exists in some form today, although for a much higher amount. Back in 1999, a new team would now have to put up a $48 million bond to prove it was serious, and this would then be paid back in monthly instalments, providing the team stayed on the grid. This was partly to prevent any more substandard entries like Lola's disastrous 1997 project, which we've done an episode on in the past, but it was also a reaction to Honda going back on its decision to enter F1 for 2000, having been promised the 12th slot on the grid before abandoning its plans and becoming a works engine partner to BAR instead. But Gary, you know what it was like to come in with a small team when Jordan joined the grid in 1991. Did you agree with the idea of this barrier to entry? Had F1 changed so much by 99 that this needed to be done? Well, I don't think it I don't think it needed to be done at that point in time, no. I mean obviously it was there was a few teams abused it by 
coming in, going out, not really being serious about it. But but they didn't they didn't come in uh, and they didn't make that decision without having felt there was going to be the potential to 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 pull the money together to be competitive through the season or to to run at least through the season. You know, when we entered nineteen ninety one, we you know, Eddie didn't really have two pennies to rub together. Um, building the car was as much as he could fund. Uh, and then after that, it was about finding sponsorship to keep the thing going, and it does show you that it, you know it can ha- it can happen if you've got enough will, will and commitment. They, you know, during ninety one, end of ninety one, ninety two, even into ninety three, you know, we were we were fairly strapped for cash, um, so it wasn't easy to survive. But at that point in time, you know, I think Bernie was a big help in keeping us alive. Um, and I think Bernie appreciated Eddie being one of the more eccentric team owners that could uh, put a bit of life into the Formula One, which it needed badly. But the, you know, the forty-eight million dollar bond getting paid back monthly—that's it's pretty heavy going to sign up to that. You've really got to have something in line that's not going to let you down, because obviously, you know, if you take the the Lola thing with the Mastercard sponsorship, it was all planned, but obviously, it just didn't work out at the end of the day, and so many sponsors have made major promises and, and you know they haven't they haven't got their rocket for example with with williams you know they all those sort of things are they come they come and go and uh, there's nobody got to stand up there and you know try be held up for this 48 million bond if the sponsor suddenly decides he doesn't want to play anymore and the sponsor's money is all down to the, the economy you know it's all down to the, the marketplace of the economy, so things can change outside of Formula One that can dramatically affect the team in Formula One. And uh, sometimes I think you need to be very careful that you don't restrict other teams coming in just because of the financial commitment uh, that's required to, to, to take that first hurdle. You have to just keep an eye on it as the as the, t- as the years progressing and make sure the team is financially structured well enough to keep going. And uh, so anyway, yeah, decisions are decisions are made, rules are in place. Um, but they're not always necessarily the right rules. I mean, you just got to look back, though, across the last 31 years. And, Glenn, we talked about it on another episode of this series. In the last 31 years, there have been three startup teams who have been successful. Jordan, Sauber, and Stuart Grand Prix. You know, that those are the only three that have, have actually made it to a, to a place where um, you could say they were credible, good, solid Formula One teams. So... It shows just how hard it was, right? In that period, I can't count the number that, that had come and gone. Um, Ed will tell us that swathe of teams that were around in the late 80s, early 90s even. Um, and, and I think that's that, that was a catalyst, right? You had the Europruns and the Colonies and all this sort of stuff coming and going. That started this whole cycle of Bernie and Max going, hang on a second, we need to, we need to just have some sort of filtering process here. Yeah, Jordan were the exception, weren't they? Absolutely. And Sauber soon after that. But yeah. I think Jordan were truly exceptional because Sauber had Mercedes money and Jack, um, sorry, Stuart Grand Prix had Ford money. So really what, you know, what Eddie and Gary and people like that did in 91 was, was truly the exception, I think, um, in so many ways. So um, with no manufacturer backing <laughs> at that stage. So I think the Honda thing upset Bernie um, a lot, I think, you know, the fact that this was going to be another proper, good, solid manufacturer team that then went away um, and then they had to create something. I think what we have now, though, because it's interesting to compare, right? Today, we've, we're talking about 200 million as, a, as an entry thing. 
But I think the 48 million they were talking about then got paid back over a period of time. So really, it wasn't a, an outflow, net outflow, it's a cash flow issue, you know, where you, you've got to put this money up and it comes back. And that, I think, is in some ways better than what we have today, which is, it's literally 200 million gone uh, with, with, with it not coming back into your pot. So I, I think that there was some, some degree of merit in what they did then to, to try and create some sort of filtering. The other change we'll talk about is that uh, this was when F1 abandoned aggregate race times for races that were red flagged, then restarted. The way this had worked was that when a race was restarted after a stoppage, the gaps at the time the race was stopped were retained, even though all the cars lined up together to take the restart. This most famously played out in the 1994 Japanese Grand Prix when Damon Hill and Michael Schumacher were in a tense battle against the clock rather than wheel to wheel on track for victory. But the FIA felt it would be much simpler for fans following the races if the gaps were just wiped out on the restart so everyone was battling for position together. Karun, what do you think of this? Can can you make any argument that the drama of Damon's Suzuka win is a case for keeping this rule as it was? No. <laughs> uh, as a as a fifteen year old watching it, you know I don't want to be. And also at that time, we didn't have a live timing app. We didn't have any of the information that you have these days to follow a race. You know, you just you just want to watch them race and whoever crosses the checkered flag wins. So. Um, I actually think what we have now is quite good. You know, you have a suspended race, safety car. It's just part of it. You know, that's that's part of Formula 1. I get it. If you're a leader who's built up a 10-second lead, it's not great. But that's sport. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, I think I think it was uh, the right thing to do is to get rid of it because it does. It does. Anything you can do to complicate a rule, a regulation put in place for Formula One just confuses it all, confuses everybody, even confuses the rule makers, as we've seen on many, many occasions. And I, I even think that now with the red flag, you know, you shouldn't be able to change tires during the red flag. You shouldn't be able to change the car. You still should suffer the consequences of the of the problem. Now, you could say, okay, well, if you drove over debris, there'll be maybe a cut in the tyre or whatever, but you can stop the next lap. You know, you can you start restart the race and you can come in the pits the next lap and, and put uh, fix your car. So basically you, what you're doing is saying to a driver, it's better to damage your car during a red flag or damage the tyres because you can change them than, than not damage them. Um, because at the end of the day, if the red flag hadn't come out, you know, other drivers that might have got some damage on the car would have to pit to, to get new tyres or new parts on the car. So it's a, there's an area there where I think that red flags even still compromise the, the end result of a race uh, relative to strategy, relative to fixing the car. So I think it's, there's still more to be done there to make sure the race is a true lights out to checkered flag race and the best man wins at the end of the day. I think there's still room for improvement in that. Let's get to the on-track action then. And this, as we've mentioned, was F1's debut at Sepang which made a good first impression on the drivers. Michael Schumacher labelled it the fourth best track in the world behind Spa, Monaco and Suzuka, and he said it bucked the trend of new circuits being mostly boring. Mika Hakkinen called it a successful design and a proper racing track that was an example to everybody of what a circuit should be. Eddie Irvine said the track had a combination of everything, and Damon Hill said it was an exciting challenge where the drivers could make a real difference to their lap time. By the end of Friday's running, most drivers said it was fun to drive, but very difficult to set up a car for. 
So Gary, you can help us with that. What was it like arriving at Sepang for the first time and trying to trying to set the car up? Well, actually, it's, it's quite interesting because that was still the time, for us at least, where you were still sticking your finger in the air to see which way the wind was blowing because you didn't have all the simulation tools you know, at the factory to help you. You had a, a few little bits and pieces to try and work out gear ratios, um, aerodynamic uh, you know, drag levels, downforce levels, but nothing to the sophistication you have nowadays. And, and I think that as a team, and with the drivers we had and the team we had, we were quite good at getting the best out of something as quick as anybody else, as long as you hadn't been there before and had lots and lots of data. Um, so it was, it, it was always a nice challenge to go to a new circuit or for conditions to change, for you to have to react on the spot. And as I say, stick your finger up and see which way the wind was blowing. But it, it was, as all the drivers said, you know, there was a bit of everything there. It was a good compromise, fast, slow corners, you know, all sorts of stuff, good long straights. And because of the way the straights were, you know, the wind wasn't a big influence because you could, you're going down one straight coming up the other one. So you're always going to get the best out of, out of the downforce levels you'd set. You, you should never get it wrong. And I, and I think you know, we had a good weekend, so I think we went there with a lot of momentum from the European Grand Prix at Nuremberg and carried that momentum on into that race. And just we sort of bought into the fact we, were, we might have been a smallish team, but we could, we could do the job given the right opportunity. And you know, that's what we tried to do in Malaysia from the start because nobody else had been there. So it was a fresh, it was a fresh start for everybody. And we thought we could do it as good as anybody. And at the end of the day, you know, I think we did. Yeah, Stuart had a great weekend, which we'll come back to in a bit. Karun, you've raced at Sepang, so you can tell us how good was it? And I'm curious, would it be as close to the top of your list as it was for Michael Schumacher? I loved Sepang. I think it's a superb circuit. It really is. Um, it's got, as Michael said, a mix of everything. I think it's got some really interesting sequences of corners as well. You know, you've got the middle part, turns five and six. I think that part towards the end where you do 12, 13 into a tightening radius 14 and they had that amazing um, design with the two straights parallel basically but a couple of hairpins at either end which meant that you got overtaking you know you had three slow corners in a row which were all different and had enough character some off camber bits as well in that sequence so you had great overtaking it, it had a, a fascinating challenge for the drivers and engineers to set a car up for the circuit, I think. Um, and I think out of, you know, that was the first of the modern tracks, wasn't it? You know, Gary mentioned before, it was the first one of the nice air-conditioned offices and the clean loos and all that sort of stuff that we weren't used to at racetracks in that era. And, and actually, if you look at it since then, in this, this era of Tilkadromes that's come through, I still think that was his best circuit. I still think, you could say Turkey, is up there um, and Austin I think is another good one but but I still maintain that um, Sepang for for all of the above mentioned reasons is is probably the best of the the modern tracks agreed and uh, Schumacher as we've mentioned made his mark in qualifying taking pole by almost a second Irvine joined him on the front row while the McLarens were just over a second back from Michael with Coulthard pipping Hakkinen to third, possibly because Mika was the only front runner to choose the harder tyre compound. Irvine released a book about his 1999 season called Life in the Fast Lane and in that he said Schumacher blasted us into orbit in this session. Uh, however, in the book 
And at the time, actually, Eddie offered a couple of excuses for the gap. He pointed out that he chose not to do a final run to save a set of tyres for the race. And he said that all the other drivers were worn out after a long season, whereas Schumacher had come back fresh after a few months off. Um, Gary, do you think Schumacher being rested made a difference here? Or was he just that much better than everybody else? Uh, well, obviously he was that much better than anybody else in that, in that period, to be honest. But he did come back rested as well. And you know, the, the one thing about it is that Michael was always the one that I classified as being not just physically fit, but mentally fit. And that rest would have given him time to become, I think, more mentally fit. Just focused, just 100% focused on all the little stuff that he probably wanted to spend time on in his mind as to what was happening and why it was happening. Just a little, you know, you can you can do so much thinking and, and sorting out uh, in your mind to make sure you come more prepared. So I, I think he he was obviously one of these guys. I mean, if you take Michael and Eddie, for example, I, I forget what race it was now, but we were, I think it was Argentina. We, we arrived, leaving the circuit, or leaving the hotel one morning at sort of six o'clock, and Michael came in from a run. And, uh, you know, he, he'd been out there. It was race day, Sunday morning, and he had come in from a run because he just wanted to sort of loosen himself up a little bit. Whereas, you know, Eddie would still be upstairs snoring his head off in bed. Well, maybe not snoring his head off, but he'd be in bed for sure. Um, and it's just a difference. That, that is the difference, really. Michael just, you know, he dotted the I's and crossed the T's on everything. And uh, and that's what give you, gives you that advantage. But the mental rest, the physical rest, uh, the dedication to training that it allows you to have after a couple of months off, um, is you, you can't you can't not not uh, count that in the an overall performance that he brought to the end of that season. Further down the grid, championship outsider Frentzen, who was twelve points behind with twenty still on the table, seemingly stuck another nail in his title coffin as he qualified fourteenth. He'd had a spin when his headrest came loose in qualifying, then took the spare car, which was set up for teammate Hill, and also had a brake problem, which cost him a run. Frentzen and Eddie Jordan had been pretty realistic about their dwindling title hopes even before qualifying, with Frentzen saying he was the underdog, but he wasn't going to claim he could win it, and Jordan saying the chances were slim and that he felt the team was paying the price for not doing a good enough job earlier in the season. Frentzen raced through into the points on Sunday to score actually what he felt was probably one of the toughest points for sixth place he'd ever earned in F1 and Jordan chose to look at the positives as they confirmed their best ever constructors championship position of third with a race to spare. It wasn't a joyous occasion for Hill in the other car though as he'd been punted out at the start by Giancarlo Fisichella's Benetton. Hill congratulated the team on, on its third place adding I just wish I could have done more to help. Karun obviously we, we've talked in the past about you know could Jordan have stayed in this championship fight. Everything that happened at Nürburgring with Frentzen breaking down from the lead there. But in a situation they were faced with in Malaysia, do you think with a clean weekend, Frentzen could have done enough to keep his title hopes alive in the fight with the McLarens and the Ferraris? It's a tricky one, isn't it? Because the reality is he they were the outsider. Um, and actually, it, it was the, the, the round... Previously, wasn't it? Where he'd obviously had pole position and then they had a, an electronic glitch, shall we call it, <laughs> at the pit stop of the Nürburgring where the car then ground to a halt, um, which which really took the wind out of their sails, I think, in, in many ways. Yeah, Eddie's right. Early on in the year, they didn't score as many points as, as some of the others. But let's be honest, 
for Jordan to win that world championship, they would have needed Ferrari and McLaren to trip up a lot. Um, they were doing a fair amount of that, but you always had the feeling that when it came down to it for the final couple of races, McLaren really should have been the favourites. You know, Mika was going to be the favourite, wasn't he? Uh, he was quicker than Eddie all year long. Eddie was able to sniff a chance because Mika made a whole heap of errors uh, as the McLaren in the middle of the year. So, um, so yeah, I, I don't think Sepang would have turned it on its head. I think they would have always been the outside bet. Uh, but you know what? Fair play to them. They, they you know, they they put themselves in contention for a for a championship in a year that nobody expected them to do, to do so. Irvine said in his book that he felt it wasn't decided until just before the race, if Schumacher would help him, although Schumacher had made it clear on multiple occasions that weekend that if he was in a position to let Irvine through, he would. We didn't have to wait long to find out for certain once the race started, as after charging away to a three-second lead after two laps, Schumacher slowed down and let Irvine through on lap four. Schumacher then tried to back up the McLarens, but he was barged aside a lap later by Coulthard, who said afterwards he knew he had to get rid of Michael because he was going to be playing games. Schumacher said Coulthard caught him by surprise, joking that maybe he lacked a bit of sharpness after being on the sidelines. Michael said he'd been managing his tyres because he was one-stopping, so he'd been careful on the power between turns one and two, which gave Coulthard the chance to get through. Karim, what did you uh, make of this move? Is another example of DC um, getting his elbows out and barging Schumacher out the way. Yeah, I mean, they had a bit of previous, hadn't they? Argentina as well, they got very close for comfort, and um, you know, on that occasion, DC ended up facing the wrong way, but... I think uh, it, it was a good bit of opportunistic overtaking. We don't, even now, you know, looking back on all the years that we've had at Sepang, don't often see many moves into turn two. And uh, yeah, I thought that was a, a great bit of opportunism from DC. Yeah, I loved it. It was good stuff. Unfortunately for Coulthard, around 10 laps later, his McLaren broke down. And that made things much more straightforward for Ferrari. Schumacher was restored to second place and he immediately dropped his pace to back up Hakkinen. Michael then sped up in the laps before the pit stops to build a gap over the McLaren and slowed down again to help Irvine build a gap before he and Hakkinen made their second stops. Hakkinen showed his frustration behind Schumacher a few times by waving a hand out of his cockpit. Quite un-Mika Hakkinen-like, you might say. But after the race, he called it brilliant tactics from Ferrari and said McLaren would probably do the same in their situation. However, he also said Schumacher was very inconsistent in some corners, breaking in surprising places, and Mika was having to concentrate a lot to make sure he didn't run into the back of him. Schumacher said, It was my job to drive a bit slower to allow Eddie to build a gap, and I did this in a fair way. He also claimed his car was damaged from the contact with Coulthard, but his fastest lap of the race was nine tenths quicker than Irvine and eight tenths faster than Hakkinen. So uh, there clearly wasn't too much wrong with it. Before we discuss this any further, let's hear Hakkinen's memories of this race, which he recently shared with our very own Ed Straw. '99 was a very special year, and and the, and the Malaysian Grand Prix. I remember, in terms of physically, that Grand Prix was a incredible. It was a such a nightmare. And I was following Michael nearly whole race, if I remember correctly, you know. And and he he know he knew where I was quick, and and uh, he knew where I was slow, and and vice versa. And and he was using those places 
in advantage where I was slow. He was even slower. So what that means that he was constantly taking taking the racing lines to take my downforce away from my car, which makes my driving extremely challenging, absolutely challenging, just to me to able to keep my race car on the track uh, without with a with the not best possible downforce was a nightmare. So I was finished, but uh, if I remember, I finished third. Michael was second, and Eddie was first. Only what I do remember that was the, the hardest, hardest uh, ever physical experience what I have experienced in Formula One uh, in that Grand Prix. It was just so so tough, and and uh, and the team, the team Ferrari played a great game. Gary, what did you think of this kind of Ferrari versus hacking and approach to the race? Did did they go too far with the games they were playing? Um, no, not really. I mean, you know, it, it was a team sport at that time. Team tactics were a little bit confusing as to what you did. But at the end of the day, if the driver, you know, really does know his responsibility, then that's the way he'll adapt. Anyway, as the race unfolds. Um, but I think that the one thing Michael did want to show was that he was doing it blatantly. He wasn't. He wasn't. You know, just not quite quick enough. He was doing what he was doing, like you know, pulling out the gap he did over the first four laps, then letting Irvine through. By just holding everybody up the way he was doing it, he was he was doing the job he should have done, but he was making it obvious to everybody. So I think that was always going to be the way. Um, but you know, nobody else likes that. No other driver likes those those type of tactics. So you know, they'll always complain about it. Despite all of that messing about, Schumacher's one-stop strategy meant that with five laps to go, he was still over six seconds ahead of Irvine, back in the lead of the race. He dropped his pace significantly to hand the place over two laps later. After the race, Irvine famously said, this guy is depressing. Not only is he the best number one, he's also the best number two, even adding that Schumacher did the hard work for me. In his 1999 book, Eddie added, Michael did the perfect job for me during the race. I couldn't have asked for a better wingman. He also felt, as Gary's actually mentioned, that Schumacher was happy because he'd been able to show how much faster he was at key points in the race. So in Irvine's words... His performance proved he is the best, so the result was good for everyone. Schumacher was asked how it felt to be letting someone else through for a change, and he said, I knew what my job was. I had no problem in letting Eddie pass. It was only right for me to give something back. I do the same as I would expect people to do for me. I would prefer to win the race, but there's no point in being glorious, and afterwards we don't win the championship. Then we look stupid. So... Corinne, we've we've talked about this a bit already, but I guess we can just have a kind of final word on it. How good was this performance from Schumacher when you take into account how fast he was when he was trying and how good he was at being the wingman as well, as Eddie said? It, it was just exemplary, wasn't it? I mean, there, there's, there's just uh, some of those days where you watch and you go, there's one driver who is head and shoulders above the others. Barcelona, 1996, Spa, 1995. Um, you know, some of those performances where he just was. And Sepang, 99, I think is is unquestionably um, one of the sort of red-letter days in the career of Michael Schumacher. Hakkinen ended up third behind the Ferraris, but only after a late pass on Johnny Herbert Stewart, which had brilliantly executed a one-stop strategy, but Johnny then made a small error with a couple of laps to go. Herbert says some brilliant stuff about this drive in his book. 
saying it was the only time since his horrific F3000 accident in 1988 that he experienced a, a sense of complete oneness with a racing car, that feeling that I honestly thought had gone forever. He added, it was as if I'd been taken over by the old me, one last race without being hampered by any of the injuries or baggage I'd accumulated. I was free for the first time in over 11 years. Why it happened there, I have no idea, and it's only stayed with me for that one weekend. There was no pain in my feet or ankles, and all the thoughts, concerns and worries I normally carried with me at the start of a race weekend were absent. Now, Gary, Johnny said he felt possessed that weekend. Did you notice anything different about him? Well, yeah, I mean, it's one of those sort of difficult things, because during the season, um, at various races, Johnny and, and uh, Rubens would be, you know, final qualifying or final uh, practice before qualifying they would be third and fourth or fourth and sixth or something but they'd both be in contention I suppose you might call it for doing a pretty good job and you go out the first run and qualifying and Ribbons would be fourth and Johnny would be 17th and we never really quite come to terms with why that was happening to him and I think it was Monza where I had to sort of like stand up and just say Johnny come on you know, there's something wrong here because you were right up there in the practice before qualifying and now qualifying, you're, you're down in the teens. So where where is this? What's happening to it? And I think it was maybe part of, of what Johnny's saying here. He just didn't he just didn't have that free feeling in the car when it came to doing that one lap uh, straight, cold, straight from cold. You know, during practice, he could build up to it and, you know, just get into the momentum of the car. But whenever you go out for qualifying, you've got to just do it and you've got to wring its neck immediately, straight from cold. And I think that whenever we got to Malaysia, I think I think a bit of that comes from the European Grand Prix, as I say, where he got his, you know, he won the race. Uh, he he kept it on the road in adverse conditions, um, made a few good decisions and ended up, you know, standing on the top step of the podium. So it was one of those sort of situations where I think he had just come to terms with himself a little bit more and his confidence level was high and that obviously makes a lot of difference and I think Malaysia all came together pointing in the right direction so all the all the stars were aligned and he, he made the best best use of it to be honest and that's that's what you got to do as a racing driver I mean it's it's one of those sort of situations where even the next race in Suzuka you know it wasn't bad it wasn't as good but it wasn't bad so yeah the future was bright I think because that was a horrific accident he went through and at Brands Hatch, you know, and the recovery from that to what he did afterwards in Formula One was was immense. Herbert said in his book that he didn't begrudge his old Lotus teammate uh, the position uh, as Hakkinen needed every point he could for the championship. But Johnny did himself a disservice as he said, although that extra point he got from me didn't win him the title, I like to think that my ineptitude went some way towards helping him. That point was crucial, though, as it meant Irvine couldn't just follow Hakkinen home at Suzuka and claim the championship. Hakkinen's third place in Malaysia meant Irvine was only four points ahead. So if Hakkinen won in Japan and Irvine was second, Hakkinen would win the title on count back of race wins. But if Herbert had stayed ahead in Malaysia, second place in Japan would have been enough for Eddie. Uh, Karun, I should say that when, when Ed asked Mika about this, uh, Mika has no recollection of that pass, let alone how crucial it was. Do you think that maybe sums up that the importance of this moment gets overlooked in the story of the 99 title fight? Oh, 100%. I mean, I think Mika clearly was saying how much, you know, that whole thing with Michael and the games that Michael was playing got into his head and he found it exhausting and it, the whole thing was just 
um, almost overwhelming for him, wasn't it? So uh, passing Johnny <laughs> in his tour clearly paled in comparison in, in amongst all the noise going on in Mika's head around this um, this mental game, I guess, that Michael and Ferrari were playing with him at the time. Let's get into the post-race drama then. Despite initially passing post-race scrutineering, both Ferraris were thrown out when their barge boards were checked again and found to be outside the regulations. To massively simplify what this was about, F1's rules stated that no bodywork could be visible when viewed from the bottom of the car, so any aerodynamic parts, like a barge board, had to have what's called a shadow plate at the bottom, blocking sight of it from underneath. And because of the contours of Ferrari's barge boards, there was a specific area in the middle of the design where the shadow plate was about a centimetre too small, so part of the barge board was visible from underneath. Ferrari boss John Todd was particularly upset about the fact that these barge boards had been on the car at the previous race at the Nürburgring and passed scrutineering there and all weekend at Sepang, so he said Ferrari felt the FIA had been alerted to recheck them by someone else. That was true, as it was McLaren design genius Adrian Newey who made the FIA aware the barge boards were illegal. Newey said he'd not been able to get a clear look at them at the previous race or during the Sepang weekend because Ferrari made a huge show about covering them up, but he'd gone for a closer look when the cars were left unguarded in Park Ferme. Todd and Irvine both felt the punishment of disqualification from the race was way too harsh. Todd called it disproportionate, while Irvine said on the Monday, having been travelling to Macau when the news broke, I can't believe they are taking the leadership of the World Championship away from me for something like that. The punishment doesn't fit the crime. Karun, before we get Gary's view on this as a rival technical director at the time, what did you think of it? Did Ferrari have a point that the penalty was too harsh? It's a funny one, isn't it? It's a bit like uh, the cost cap stuff we're talking now. You know, it's... The reality is, if something's illegal, something's illegal. Now, what they successfully managed to argue here was that it wasn't illegal if, if it was being measured in a certain way. But, but to me, it's sim the simplistic view I always take is if a car is underweight by, by 0.1 of a kilo, it's underweight. There's, there's no ambiguity there, and it's, it's thrown out of qualifying of the race. So... Um, and clearly Ferrari knew this and Ross Brown knew this, so they they knew that they, the argument of um, performance gain or percentage of performance gain not fitting the the penalty isn't an argument you could ever win. So the only way they could win this argument was to um, find a way to show that it was still legal. And, and that's what they did. But... Uh, yeah, I feel like this is this is definitely more Gary's uh, cup of tea, this <laughs> barge board gate, than mine. Yeah, well, uh, we'll bring Gary in shortly. Because remarkably, on the Sunday night in the paddock, Ross Braun held an impromptu press conference where he held up one of the barge boards in question and explained that it was indeed illegal. However, Ross said it was a mistake. Ferrari wouldn't produce a part that it knew was illegal. Uh, that it offered no performance gain, as Carew mentioned, and that Ferrari was going to look into establish what had happened. Braun spoke at length about this in the book he released with Adam Park called Total Competition. He said Ferrari eventually found out it was a misunderstanding by a design engineer and that during the vetting and inspection process at Ferrari, nobody had spotted the error in the engineer's understanding. 
Braun also said he regretted giving that Sunday night press conference where he effectively accepted blame on Ferrari's part. He said there was tremendous pressure from within Ferrari to say something straight after the race and it was a mistake in my view to say anything because there was no need. My instinct would have been to initially to say nothing, just control the situation because what we were doing by commenting straight after the race, we were reacting in a panic and I hate doing that. Those impulsive statements often come back to haunt you and I wish we had never, I had never made that statement. So Gary, now... We'll come to you with this. Firstly, what did you think of the decision, the initial disqualification? And as a technical director yourself, can you sympathise with Ross over being forced into that Sunday night media briefing? Well, yeah, I can sympathise with him as far as the, the Sunday night media briefing is concerned. But to actually say that uh, it was a misunderstanding by a design engineer is a, is a bit strange. You know, they're, they're all part of the same team. It's a team, it's a team sport. And I agree with Karen, you know, regulations are regulations. One millimeter or, or 10 millimeters or 0.1 of a kilo or one kilo. It doesn't really matter. If it's illegal, it's illegal. So we, we were disappointed that they didn't get thrown out, obviously, for our positions. But at the end of the day, it, the bars boards were a very powerful uh, component. They still are a very powerful component as far as, you know, the, the 2021 regulations are concerned. So small Detailed changes on there makes them work very, very differently. And it's, it's wrong to say they didn't help the performance. They, they did help the performance. Uh, they always will help the performance if you've got a small detail that you can exaggerate. So I still think to this day they were illegal. Uh, the, the, there's no point in proving it after the event that it's, it's legal. Because it's it's the ones that are on there for the event that are tested and checked. And, you know, Joe, Joe Bauer is no fool. He, he checked them all. Uh, and they were illegal, and they should have been thrown out. But because of Ferrari, it didn't happen. Well, the appeal hearing uh, took place the Friday after the race. Uh, so at this point, of course, Mick Hakkinen is world champion because Ferraris have been thrown out. Uh, the outcome was announced by FIA President Max Mosley in a press conference on the Saturday morning, so six days later. Ferrari won the appeal by successfully arguing that the missing element of the barge boards, when measured in a certain way, fell within f the five millimetre tolerances allowed in the F1 technical regulations that govern the flat bottom of the car. The International Court of Appeal said in its verdict that all dimensions of the barge board were within the five millimetre tolerances. And it's also said that the suggestion that a 10 millimetre shadow plate was missing from the bottom of the barge board resulted from a method of measurement which was not necessarily in strict conformity with the regulations. In simple terms, Ferrari were basically able to say, well, if you measure it like this, it's actually within the tolerances allowed. The verdict then went on to say, that the measuring equipment available to the FIA scrutineers at the Malaysian Grand Prix was not sufficiently accurate to call into question Ferrari's statement. This all came down to exactly what angle the barge boards had been mounted on the cars, and because the FIA had taken the parts off to impound them, it had no way to disprove Ferrari's claim about how they were mounted. Mosley admitted in his book that it, this was a mistake by the FIA, saying with hindsight we should have impounded the entire car. Braun said in his book that Ferrari had come up with this defence after a series of meetings in the days leading up to it that involved studying the regulations intently and coming up with an argument that applied the tolerances of the flat floor rules to vertical surfaces as well. Hopefully you're still with us. 
This meant, in Braun's words, there was an interpretation that you could present where they weren't illegal. He also admitted it was never the intention of the regulation, and I think everybody knew how the regulation was applied. But ultimately, when you go to an appeal court, you are sat in front of a group of people who are qualified only to make an interpretation of the wording of the regulation. <laughs> so after all of that, Gary, is the best way to describe this to say that Ferrari found a way to win this appeal on a technicality? What did you make of the way the, the appeal process and how they got reinstated was handled? Well, to try to explain this, it's pretty difficult actually, but to try to explain Please it a little, do. Bit, <laughs> a little bit better. Um, if you imagine the, 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 the barge board itself is a, a curved plane of carbon fibre and it may be three mil thick or five millimetres thick or whatever, but basically it's got a bottom. And the bottom of that barge board theoretically hides the rest of the barge board if you look directly from below the car. So you can have it as tall as you want, as long as it's on the same curve, the same profile. On the Ferrari uh, barge board, the top of it was further outward than the bottom. So when you look from below, the bottom of the barge board didn't act as a shadow plate for the top of the same component because it was sitting at an angle. Now, if you take a, you know, a plate square or a square and you put it across the flat floor of the car and put it up vertically, obviously that's what you've got. You've got a 90 degree angle that that barge board can sit at. But if you take the bottom of the car and you're allowed this uh, five millimeter tolerance, if you um, have that five millimeter tolerance, then the square doesn't sit square. It, it, the bottom of it doesn't sit horizontal. So the, ver the vertical part of the square doesn't sit vertical. So it lies out a little bit. So it means that you can see, you're allowed to see part of the, the barge board. But it does mean that, you know, you're contravening the you're you're not contravening the regulations because you're not more than the five millimeter on the flat floor area, but because the flat floor isn't flat, then it means that the barge board can lean out a bit, and it's very very difficult to explain it. But it's it's wrong. Basically, in my book, it's wrong. You know, the, there's nothing that says there that the you know the flat floor area, the five millimeter tolerance that's on that flat floor, will be taken into account to any vertical reference plane. It's, it's and also the one thing that we always have had, and we have even more now, is that the, 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 the measuring equipment that the FIA have at the circuit are there for you to use. You can bring your own measuring equipment if you, if you want to, but the FIA's measuring equipment is what is theoretically gospel. And we used to have something, and Adrian Newey could relate to this, the, what was called the Bridge of Doom. Whenever they did their first big flat platform and they took it to the first race of the year, we all, we all put our cars onto the, the Bridge of Doom as such to measure it all up. The front wings were illegal, and that was that was only because the the bridge of doom was was flexing with the weight of the car on it. Everybody else tested their wing and designed it to be legal, the height of the front wing relative to the underneath of the car. But when you put it onto a, a flat plate that's flexing, the front wing was too low. So I remember Adrian Newey shouting and screaming at the FIA guys to you know you can't have this because we all designed our car legally, and you're saying that every car in the pit lane is illegal by you know three millimeters or something. And it's not because of the cars. We, there was an exception given for that first couple of races, I think, because of this, because every car was illegal. But it's, it just shows that you have to use the equipment that the FIA have created to check the legality. And Ferrari got away with arguing that if you used theoretically perfect uh, equipment to measure it, you could come up with an argument that their barge board was legal. But in reality, it wasn't. The barge board vertical face should be vertical. Um, but it wasn't vertical. It was out by the amount of the floor tolerance. So 
they could argue it was legal because if it was mounted properly, 100%, um, then it would have been okay. But it wasn't mounted 100% because the floor was out. So it's a circle of events and at the end of the day they got away with it. We were disappointed, as was a lot of people. The successful appeal meant that F1 had a title decider in Japan after all, with Irvine heading to Suzuka four points ahead of Hakkinen. McLaren took this news badly, with Ron Dennis calling it a really bad day for the sport. He added, We are not disappointed and not really surprised. We believe the push now for our sport has inevitably become quite commercial. Everybody wants to have an exciting race in Japan, but I think the price we have paid for that one race is too great. The benefits of this decision are purely short-term, and I don't think that it does any long-term good. And now this sport has lost a degree of its integrity. Ron accepted that Ferrari probably had made a mistake rather than intended to run an illegal part, but in his view, the regulations needed to be enforced. And he also disputed Ferrari's argument that the 5mm tolerance rule should apply to that part of the car. He then accused F1 and the FIA of having a desire to see teams other than McLaren and Williams winning championships, adding it seems to be the perception that Ferrari winning the championship is better than McLaren. Mosley hit back at those accusations, accusing Dennis of bringing F1 into disrepute and saying only those who don't understand the basis of the ruling would make the claims Dennis did. Mosley also said if the FAA really wanted to help Ferrari, it would have just declared the barge boards legal on the Sunday in Malaysia. So Karun, what do you make of all that? Do you think there's any truth to the fact that there was a motivation here for F1 to make sure it got a title decider in Japan? 100%. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I remember being in India with a bunch of friends watching it and, you know, we had these big McLaren fans and Ferrari fans and we were all getting very excited for the season finale in Japan. And then um, it used to be BBC World News that we'd watch, you know, later on that popped up the thing that he'd been disqualified. You know, this was before we all really had, you know, internet as part of our day-to-day -day lives or on our smartphones and stuff. So um, I remember that being a bit of an anticlimactic feeling, really, thinking, oh, that's a bit rubbish. You know, it completely took the fizz out of it. And I'm sure, you know, in the week that went between Malaysia and, and the, the final hearing, uh, there were a lot of conversations about, right, how can we make this Ferrari legal? <laughs> Let's all get together and figure out a way for the show to, to you know. And, and listen, Ron's a smart guy. You know, Ron's, Ron's, but that's it. He's been around the block a lot of times. He's been in a lot of championship battles. I'm sure even he knew deep down they would find a way to, uh, to get the championship battle to go to Japan. Yeah, McLaren, I don't think McLaren really ever celebrated that that championship. And I, I noticed there also, Gary was nodding along when you said that they definitely wanted the uh, the title decider. But Adrian Newey made some really interesting claims about what happened here in his book. He says that Ferrari were encouraged to protest by Mosley and even someone as level-headed as Newey can't resist in his book referencing the rumours that FIA actually stood for Ferrari International Aid. Uh, so that's not just an internet conspiracy theory. One of F1's greatest minds has a, um, a feeling that, that might be true. Newey said he spoke to Mosley about this years later. And Max told him that he felt McLaren had lured Ferrari into a trap, claiming that they already knew the barge boards were illegal and they waited for Ferrari to win a race before protesting them. 
Newey called that complete rubbish, saying he'd just been not been able to see them until they were left unguarded in Park Ferme. And he added, even if that were the case, it didn't alter the fact that Ferrari were using illegal barge boards. Newey said the appeal hearing made the Spanish Inquisition look exemplary and he expressed some suspicion about the fact that Charlie Whiting was on holiday so couldn't offer his findings. Adrian accepted that it's easy to make silly mistakes like the one Ferrari made but it wasn't what Ferrari did that made him angry, it was the fact that they'd been let off the hook. And the final point he made on this was I am absolutely sure this would never have happened had it been us who had made a similar mistake. So Gary... Adrian didn't hold back there at all in his book. And he actually said that he couldn't say any more for kind of fear of, of legal action. So how, what do you make of Adrian's interpretation there? And do you think Max was right to say that McLaren tried to trap Ferrari here? Well, it's not a case of trying to trap anybody. It's a case of is a car legal or is a car illegal? It doesn't really matter who, who brings it all up. The FIA are supposed to make sure the cars are race in a legal condition. It's one of those sort of difficult things. We, pro we as Jordan protested Benetton uh, in 1994 at uh, the uh, AEDA. Um, we finished third and Michael won the race. And at that point in time, you had to have exactly the same regulation. You had to have a, uh, the, the floor area had to be basically, um, well, you weren't allowed to have holes in it, basically, you know, any of the floor area. And that included the bottom of the barge board. It had to be impervious. Whereas we had we had two we had the one bracket holding the barge board, so you had the the flat floor area, you had the one bracket holding the barge board, and you had the bottom of the barge board, all a continuous surface. There was a, a cutout in it, but it was a one continuous surface. Surface. Well, on the Benetton they had two brackets, so they had a major hole in the middle of it. So they had the, the flat floor area, they had the front front bracket, the bottom of the barge board, and a rear bracket. And you know between those brackets and the barge board and the floor there was a huge hole in it. Uh, and uh, the FIA's ruling on that was that the surface that was that was left was impervious. So in other words, you could have the floor area with lots of holes in it uh, over the whole thing, anywhere you wanted them, but the, the surface that was left had to be impervious. Now, the Oxford English Dictionary says that impervious means you can't pour water through it. So I don't know how big the hole can be uh, to allow you to pour water through it, but we found out then that basically... You shouldn't protest uh, anything that the FIA are doing or the FIA have, have gone with. And it was a bit like Irvine's accident in Brazil, you know, where in the, the beginning of 94, where he lost, he had to miss three races because of it. You know, initially he lost one race because of it. And we protested it and said, look, it's, it's not very fair. It wasn't really his fault. Josh Verstappen attacked him and, you know, he didn't see him coming and they touched and so on and so forth. Um, but we lost out there as well. So you learn your lesson pretty quickly that just take take what you've got on the chin and uh, and stay out of trouble as best you can. But the the fact that you know go, going back to the the Ferrari barge boards, I agree with Adrian. I agree with Ron Dennis uh, that the the fact they were illegal, uh, they will always be illegal to this day. I, I believe you have to wonder sometimes as to how they come to these decisions because it is pretty difficult to actually sort of see in front of you the, the package that creates your car and some teams can exploit it a little bit further than others and I've seen it during the years you look at somebody you think how did they get away with that but I learned during the years just to accept it it's, it's going to be the way it is you know yeah I think uh, I think we can leave it there for Malaysia 99 this did rumble into the start of the Suzuka weekend so when we cover that year's 
Japanese Grand Prix. We'll uh, we'll pick up any any loose ends, but uh, yeah, not not F1's finest moment, but. We got a title decider and McLaren won it anyway, so uh, not, not too much ongoing controversy from this one. Thanks to Gary and Karun for joining us for this one. Uh, next time, we're revisiting another Michael Schumacher masterclass as we head to the 2004 French Grand Prix, which he famously won with a unique four-stop strategy that outfoxed Fernando Alonso's Renault team. The Athletic.